Father, thank you uh, for the amazing truths that we've been singing about just now. Um, thank you that always, all the time, in our world and in our lives, you are working for our good. Even when we can't see it, you're working. Even what the enemy means for evil, um, you're able to turn it for our good. Um, Father, we pray you would help us to believe that, especially in the times when we're in times of sorrow and times of struggle and times when we can't see the way ahead. Help us to trust uh, that the God who made us and the God who loves us is working for our good. Um, Father, I want to pray as we open up your word this morning. Um, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us light? Would you give us understanding? Where there are things that puzzle us, I pray you would give us patience uh, to wait and to wrestle and to hold on to your word until you bring light. Um, um, Father, we want to pray that your word would not just be something that fills our minds with um, information and knowledge, but we want to pray that you would speak to the depths of our hearts. Thank you for Eileen's reminder that our hearts are the wellspring of life. And so we want to pray this morning, would you speak by your word, would you speak by your spirit to the depths of our hearts and bring newness of life? And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so if you are um, visiting this morning or um, here for the first time, we are reading um, one of the most, uh, one of the strangest books of the Bible, um, sometimes for some people, one of the more daunting uh, but we're puzzling our way through it um, together. Um, and maybe I want to begin with um, what, what I guess might be a good table quiz question, um, or maybe a little difficult. Um, I wonder if I was to ask you, of, of all the songs which have reached number one on the American pop charts, um, which one has the oldest lyrics? Of all the songs that have ever reached number one on the charts, which one has the words that were written longest to go. Um, you're going to guess it's something to do with Ecclesiastes, right? So we'll, we'll come back to that in, in a little moment. Um, but let's read the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and maybe one of the most famous passages in this book. The teacher, Colette, speaks and he says, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. wonder did anybody um, get this? This is... Um, of all the songs that have ever been at number one, I, I think probably uh, the one with the oldest words. 
uh, was the song Turn, 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 uh, subtitled to Everything There Is a Season. Uh, it was written by Pete Seeger, who was a folk singer hero of the counterculture, um, but became a hit for the birds and reached number one in, I think, 1965. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers it. I'll not ask if anybody remember it. Um, here's a fascinating thing. The, word, the words of the song taken pretty much word for word from the book of Ecclesiastes, the words that we've just read, but it resonated in some way in the counterculture. Pete Seeger actually intended it as a, a peace anthem, as an anti-war song, uh, and he added a little bit at the end and said, there's a time for peace. Uh, I, I, I pray it's not too late. Um, why did the words of Ecclesiastes, written a long, long, long time ago, resonate in the counterculture of the 60s? Um, here's another puzzle. Um, these words, this is a very famous part of scripture, and these words are often read at funerals, um, including not only the funerals of Christians, but the funerals of people of all kinds of beliefs, including the funerals of humanists and atheists who don't believe in God. Um, and so I've been puzzling a little bit over this, over what do all these different people um, see or hear in this ancient poem um, from Ecclesiastes? Why, why are people drawn to it? Why do people find it comforting, uh, this, this ancient poem? Um, the, the theme of the poem is that there is a time for everything. There's a season for everything. Um, and I don't know if you noticed as we read, we're going to read on a little bit more um, in Ecclesiastes in a moment, but the poem, that poem that we read um, doesn't mention God. Um, it simply lists lots of things that are part of life, lots of things that have their time, that have their season, um, and they're arranged in pairs of opposites, uh, which gives it this kind of poetic rhythm. Um, it's a beautiful poetic description of ordinary human experience. Life is made up of all these things. They all have their time. Um, and I've been wondering, I'd, be, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, but I've been wondering, why do people find it comforting, whatever their beliefs? Um, there's a few things I've been thinking about. I think there's a, on one level, there's just a recognition of life as we experience it. People hear it and say, that's the life I know. That is, that's the life we all live. And there's a comfort in that recognition. There's a recognition that life is a mixed experience. It's not all one thing. It's not all down here and it's not all up there. It's a, it's a mixed experience. Um, there's a recognition that life is not definitely not always good. We're not always on a high. Um, nor is life kind of a, a straight line graph that just gets better and better and better. But rather it's rhythms and seasons of the good and the bad, the beautiful and the difficult. Um, we recognize that. That's what life is like. Um, I think also there's encouragement in the poem that if you're in the bad times, if you're in the place of mourning, um, of weeping, of war, it's not going to last forever. Um, that mourning is going to be followed by dancing, that weeping is going to be followed by laughing, that war is going to be followed by peace, and that's a very comforting thing. Although even as I say that, we need to also say that the opposite is also true that if life is made up of these seasons, then if we're in a time of peace, we know that 
war is going to come again. <laughs> We're in a time of dancing. We know that mourning is going to come. These are all part of life. Um, it's a fascinating thing why um, people of all kinds um, are drawn to this, uh, this ancient poem. Um, I do want to say um, very quickly in passing, um, I don't think this poem is teaching ethics or teaching how we should behave morally. Um, I was a little bit surprised last week um, helping my 16-year-old son get ready for his GCSEs um, to find these verses quoted in his RA notes as part of a discussion about Christian views of war and quoting there's a time to kill and a time for war. Um, and I'm going to stick my neck out here and say um, Ecclesiastes 3 is not the place to go to get your ethics or moral argument. There are lots of places in the Bible to go for that. I'd suggest starting with the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount are really good places to begin. Whatever Ecclesiastes 3 is, it's not primarily kind of ethical, moral teaching. So I, I found that a little bit, I'm not, I'm not wanting to um, question the authorities who write the RE notes, but um, maybe I am. Um, um, the, the other thing is the poem that we just read by itself, if that's all we read, is not really teaching theology either. Um, it doesn't mention God. It's simply observing the way life goes, the way things happen. This is followed by this. That is followed by that. Um, and I think that's why all kinds of people can relate to it. All of life is here. Um, it's kind of a much more um, stately, poetic way of saying life is like a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get. Life is made up of all, all these things. Um, the poem by itself is beautiful, and it may even be strangely comforting, but it actually doesn't provide yet much in the way of hope. And so if you read on after that famous poem, the very next words we read, which are not surprising if you've been reading Ecclesiastes all the way through, are, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. For some reason, that got left out of the song, right? Um, it wouldn't have made a, a, a cheerful pop hit. Um, it's the same weary tone that we've been hearing all through Ecclesiastes. And so by itself, that poem doesn't yet give us hope. One thing follows another. Turn, turn, turn. Life follows death, mourning, dancing, war, peace, silence, speech, tearing, mending. The writer, the, the teacher is still saying, but so what? What does it all add up to? That dance of things, where does it all lead? What does any of it mean? What do we gain from going round and round and round? All of it is still Havel, mist, vapor, chasing the wind, right? So um, if we want to find a way out of that endless circularity, um, I think we need to read on. I, I love the beginning of Ecclesiastes 3, but it's leading us somewhere. Um, and I want to read the next verse after this one, um, which is the one that I want to really focus on this morning. And um, I think is not only the center of this passage, but also in many ways a key to the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, the teacher says, speaking of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, 
yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Let me read it again. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And really, for the rest of our time, I want to I just focus on that verse, and we'll mention some other things from later in the chapter, um, but that's the verse that I want to zoom in on, and I want to break it down a phrase at a time. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Um, whenever we, we just look at life under the heavens, under the sun, as we talked about last week, um, what we see is that one thing follows another in an endless cycle. But whenever we lift our eyes above the sun and look to the creator, we start to see something else, that life is not random and chaotic, that life is not pointless and meaningless and absurd, that life doesn't actually go round in weary circles. But as we've just been singing, God is at work in our world, inside the apparent mess of, of time where we live, in the middle of all these things that are listed in the poem, God is working and he is doing something beautiful. He's writing a story. He's weaving a story that has purpose and meaning. Somehow in the mess of history, in the mess of life under the sun, God is at work and he's creating something beautiful. Um, I do think it's important to say, um, whenever we say God has made everything beautiful, um, I don't think that means that everything that happens in our world is beautiful. Uh, that would be a very strange and troubling conclusion. Um, and actually, I think you can do damage to your heart trying to see things in that way, and you can do damage to your view of God. There are a lot of things that happen in our world that are not beautiful, that are ugly and twisted and wrong, and they need to be named as that. We need to be able to say that is not good, that is not beautiful, that is not right. Um, and actually, if we read on, so keep, keep that verse in mind, I want to show you, if we'd read on a little bit later in the chapter, um, we read this, I saw something else under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, in the place of justice, wickedness was there, right? What's, what's the teacher saying? Um, that everything in our world is not good. Everything in our world is not beautiful. There are things that are distorted and damaged by evil, by sin, by wickedness. Um, and actually, as the chapter goes on, um, it find, the teacher finds hope in a surprising direction. Um, the teacher talks about how there is one more thing for which there is a time. So we've talked about a time for this and a time for that. But there's one more thing he hasn't mentioned yet. And this is what he says a little later. Um, in, uh, in verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. And so for the teacher, the teacher finds hope as he looks at the world in thinking about the fact that one day God will bring Judgment. Why, why does he say that as a hopeful thing? Because one of the reasons that it can feel like life is absurd and meaningless, which is one of the things this, that the teacher is wrestling with, 
is that as we look at our world, there's a lack of moral order. There can even seem to be sometimes a kind of moral chaos where the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, where people do good things and yet struggle and are forgotten or are sidelined and where people do terrible things and get away with it or even are rewarded for it. And it can be really hard when you look at a world like that to make sense of all that. But the teacher says, we don't live in a world of moral chaos, no matter how it may appear at this moment in time. There will be a time for judgment when God will hold people to account and everything hidden will be brought into the light and God will bring justice and will bring the story to a good end. History is not going round in circles. It's heading somewhere. And we can trust the God of all the earth to do right. He will bring the story to a good end. Um, I love in the, in the Apostles' Creed, which is probably the earliest of all the creeds that we have, it finishes simply by saying Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And it's trusting that he will come and sort things out and make things right. Um, and our world is not going in circles and it's not a world of chaos. And so as strange as it might seem to us, there's a connection between being able to say God is making everything beautiful and that Jesus is going to come in judgment. Um, it's presented here as good news. It's an essential part of how God will make things beautiful in the end. Out of all of the mess of history, God will bring things to a good end. Um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. But then he goes on to say this. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Um, wonder how that phrase strikes you this morning. Um, you, you may have noticed if you've been reading on in Ecclesiastes, um, you may have noticed, you're allowed to read on if you want to, by the way, um, the, you may have noticed that the teacher in Ecclesiastes um, in many ways does not yet have the full hope of the gospel. He's living at a different time in the, the story of God's people. He doesn't yet have the full hope of the gospel. And if you, you read on even to the end of the chapter that we're in, um, you find um, he doesn't have a clear hope of resurrection or eternal life. And there's a bit later on in the chapter where he, he kind of says, animals die and return to the dust and humans die and return to the dust. And he says, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. And maybe if you're reading it as a Christian, you want to say, I know, I know. Um, he's saying, who knows? Um, uh, for us as Christians, because of where we live on this side of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, we have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. The, the teacher cannot yet see that in all its fullness. But for now, I, I guess what I would say is the teacher sees part of the truth. He's not sure or certain about what happens after death. And yet, as he pays attention to his own heart, and perhaps as he listens to the hearts of those around him, um, he notices something. He notices um, a hunger, a desire, a restlessness, an aching, a longing for something beyond this world of time. That's what he notices. Eternity in the human heart. Um, C.S. Lewis 
calls it the scent of a flower we haven't yet found, the echo of a tune we haven't yet heard, news from a country we've never visited. And it grabs you by the heart. Right? C.S. Lewis also called it the inconsolable secret in each one of you. Right? And he meant, he meant that, that it's in everyone. That hunger and that longing and that desire is in every person who's ever lived. Um, and so I want to suggest this morning, it's in the hippie with flowers in their hair dancing to the birds, right? That aching, that longing. It's in the atheist hearing that beautiful poem read at a funeral, that longing for eternity. Um, and I want to suggest it's in your friends and your neighbours and your colleagues, um, whether they recognise it or not, or have ever named it out loud or not. Um, it's in the stranger beside you in the doctor's waiting room. It's in the young mum pushing her stroller at the school gate. It's in the teenagers drinking in Mount Sandal Forest. It's in the old man walking his dog slowly up the road. Eternity is in the heart. And we don't know what to call that ache and that longing and that desire, but it can surprise you at any moment. C.S. Lewis says, um, or I also wanted to say it, it's important to say, it's in the rich and it's in the poor, and it's in the famous, and it's in the forgotten, and it's in the popular, the in crowd, and it's in those who are lonely. It's in the really respectable religious person, and it's in the rebel. Um, it's in everybody. Um, and I love C.S. Lewis says, we, we feel awkward and shy talking about it. We don't know how to talk about that longing and we feel almost embarrassed about it and so we call it nostalgia or we call it beauty or we call it wonder as if that explains it away. Um, the teacher in Ecclesiastes calls it eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts. He's made us with a hunger which nothing in this world can satisfy. Right? He's made us with a hunger that nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing under the sun, nothing within the world of time. Um, as we saw it last week, um, you can spend your life running after all kinds of things, and people do. Um, and you can run after wisdom and knowledge and education and money and houses and holidays and entertainment and sex and pleasure and work and success and achievement and whatever else you want to add to the list. But even if you succeed in reaching all your goals, Whenever you sit still for a moment in the quiet, whenever you wake in the night, you'll find the hunger hasn't gone away because you were made for more. You were made for something beyond the sun, <laughs> right? Um, I think of all those who've written about this in church history, um, no one still to this time has said it better than Augustine, um, who said in a prayer, you have made us for yourself speaking to God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You've made us for yourself, so our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, maybe we find ourselves wondering, well, what can we do with that restlessness in our hearts? Because we are, we are little foolish creatures living within time, um, and how on earth can we reach out and connect with the eternal creator, right? Um, how, how on earth can we bridge that gap? 
Um, one day, Jesus spoke to a crowd by the Sea of Galilee. And he spoke these words. He said, I am the bread of life. And he went on to say, whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Um, our belief as Christians is that in Jesus, the eternal has come near. Eternity has entered into time. And standing on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, eternity was there. God was there making the offer that that deep hunger, that deep thirst can be satisfied. And Jesus says, all you need to do is come to me. Um, similar to what Jenny read to us earlier, if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're burned out, if you're frazzled, Jesus says, come to me and find rest. Um, similarly, if you recognize that there's an aching and a longing and a desire in you that nothing in this world can satisfy, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Um, later on in John's gospel, just before Jesus went to the cross, um, Jesus promised that he would send his spirit. Um, and one of my, my favorite little bits in all uh, the words of Jesus, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he says something remarkable. He says, my father and I will come and make our home within you. And so this is the only thing that can fill the void in the human heart is that the eternal creator God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would come and make their home within the human heart, which Eileen spoke about earlier, would make their habitation, would make their dwelling place within the human heart. It's not an extraordinary thing to contemplate on a Sunday morning, um, sitting on a blue chair in the Sandal Centre. Um, the eternal God comes near to make his home within us. Um, but before we finish, I want to read these words. Because um, uh, having said, made those two amazing statements, God makes everything beautiful in its time. He puts eternity in our hearts. And then, then he says, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Um, and I, lo I love that. Um, because for now we are still living inside of time. We're still living in that world of the poem, uh, the world of birth and dying and love and hate and war and peace and mourning and dancing, and it's all mixed together. And for now, our view is limited and we see through a glass darkly and we can't see the big picture of what God is doing. And we can't see either the beginning or the end. We're stuck in the messy middle where we are living. And so there's a lovely call here, I think, to humility to say we don't see very much um, from where we are. Our perspective is very limited. We don't understand very much uh, of the whole story. And yet God in his kindness, as we've seen this morning, has shown us some things. I think God in his kindness always shows us enough to be getting on with. We don't need to know everything. We don't need to see everything, but he, he shows us enough. And he's shown us that he is at work to make all things beautiful, that he'll one day bring the story to a good end, that he's put a hunger for himself in our hearts. Um, and also now, because of Jesus, um, we see these things a little more clearly, even than the teacher did. Um, 
we see that in Jesus, we find the object of our deepest desire, the bread of heaven, the living water, um, eternal life, by which we mean not just a life of incredible quantity that goes on forever and ever, but a life of incredible quality, because the eternal God comes and makes his home in your heart. Eternity has come near. Um, God has come near. And so we live with humility, um, because there's a whole lot that we don't understand. But we live in the light of what God has revealed, what he has shown us. Um, Here's where I want to end. Maybe those are big things to think about this morning. And I hope you find some quiet space this week um, to sit sit and reflect on these things. Um, But maybe you want to ask a very practical question and ask, how should we live in the meantime um, as we wait for the day when Jesus is going to come and make all things new and judge the living and the dead and bring us to our eternal home? Um, How do we live in the messy middle? Um, And if we'd read on in chapter 3, um, the teacher offers three really simple encouragements, and I'm not going to talk about them. I'm just going to give them to you. Um, and they repeat things we've already read and that he will repeat again. Um, maybe you can regard this as like a Ecclesiastes version of live, love, laugh. Right? Here, are, here are three encouragements from Ecclesiastes. Be happy, do good, and fear God. Right? Be happy. We've already talked about Last, last week, enjoy the good, simple gifts that God gives you every day. Receive them with gratitude. Do good. You, use the time that you've been given to look around and ask, how can I be a blessing? How can I be a help? How can I be an encouragement? Um, do good the days that you're given on this earth. Um, and maybe I want to leave you with a puzzle because maybe you feel like the last one doesn't fit. Be happy sounds great. and Do good sounds pretty good. Fear God can kind of jar us. Um, It's a theme that is repeated often in the Old Testament, and we're going to find it coming up again later in Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm not going to solve the puzzle this morning. I'm just going to say, whatever it means, it doesn't mean simply being scared of God. But I want to leave the puzzle with you. What does it mean to live a life where we are to be happy and do good and fear God? And I want you to puzzle over that. I want to encourage you to puzzle over that and maybe talk to others about it, about what that might mean. Um, Let's pray as we finish this morning. Um, Then we're going to sing uh, just to end our service. Let me remind you, um, prayer is available up here after the service. And let me remind you, if you don't want prayer and you don't want to stack chairs, run for the exits um, as soon as we're we're finished. Um, Let's pray. Father, we want to pray. Um, We've thought about things this morning that can stretch our minds. Um, Father, I want to pray that there would be simple truth in what we've talked about this morning that would really stay with us um, and that would um, reach the depths of our hearts. Father, you know that sometimes living in this world of time, we find life really confusing. And sometimes we find life really hard or discouraging or overwhelming. 
we can't see what's ahead. We can't get free of the things that are behind. Um, we find life messy and complicated. Um, Father, I want to pray, would you encourage our hearts this morning? That in the midst of all that looks messy to us, you're at work to write a story of redemption and to make all things new and to make all things beautiful. Father, I want to pray, would you help us to pay attention to that aching and longing in our hearts, which is a clue to what we were made for, that we're made for more than anything this world has to offer. Father, if there's anybody with us this morning um, who has never opened wide the door of their heart and invited Father, Son, and Spirit to come and make their home within them, Father, we pray this would be the morning. Um, Father, thank you for the words of Jesus and his gentle invitation, saying, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will not be hungry. Father, for all of us this morning, would you help us again to say yes to that invitation and to come to Jesus and find the deepest hunger of our hearts or satisfied only in him. And Father, would you help us in the meantime, as we live in this messy world, um, help us to learn what it means this week to be happy, to do good, to fear God. Um, show us what that means in our everyday living. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.